Welcome back to In Her Lens. I'm your host, Nadine Rumer, and in this series, I chat with today's women filmmakers. This week, I'm joined by Beatrice Brown. Beatrice is a New York-based, Webby Award-winning producer and director specializing in nonfiction storytelling. Her work includes the docu-series My Kid The, which has been watched over 5 million times and been recognized by outlets such as Good Morning America and Upworthy. Beatrice grew up like I did, a third culture kid, born in Brazil but raised in China and the UAE, which is where we met years ago in high school. She found her home in the arts. In this episode, we chat about her journey from child actor to filmmaker, about being a multidisciplinary artist, the practicalities of pitching, producing, and funding your own work. We also discuss her upcoming short doc that she's been filming for the past three years about the resistance of culture in NYC. Beatrice and I also ponder the bigger questions, like what it means to be an artist today. I'm thrilled for you to hear her thoughts. Here is Beatrice on In Her Lens. Hi, Beatrice. Welcome to In Her Lens. Hello. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you for being here. I'm very grateful to have you here. We go uh, way back. (laughs) We do indeed. But let's start in true film fan style. What is the last thing that you watched? Um, The last thing that I watched was, oh, it was actually a series of short documentaries from Nat Geo by Orlando von Eisendel. And it's Von Eisendel, you'll help me because you're Dutch, so you can figure it out. It's in association with the Nobel Peace Prize laureates. Um, It's really five beautiful stories about people who are really, truly doing something amazing for the world. I love that. That's very inspirational. With this quarantine and everything, I've been, you know, I've watching a lot of narrative stuff, Mm -hmm. documentary work. It makes me excited about the world. Totally. And rather than escaping it. So it's been a really nice way for me to stay in tune with being a part of of a community and a society. Totally. It's two different spectrums, right? Fiction and nonfiction. And we go to each for specific things and we gain specific things out of each. Right now, there's no better time for documentary filmmaking, I think. And, And it's starting to, I think it's finding its audience that should have been found a long time ago. So let's talk a little bit about your childhood and growing up. I know that we grew up in a similar way. We call it third culture kid. I don't know if you know that term, but a third culture kid grows up kind of outside of their parents' culture. So tell me a bit about your your youth. So I was originally born in Brazil to a Brazilian family, uh, born in Rio, lived in Rio until I was about 10 years old. And then my dad got a job in China. So we moved to China. I had, I didn't know how to speak any English, any Chinese, nothing. It was a true like third world experience um, for my family. Um, And we arrived in Shenzhen, which back then was a total ghost town for expats. We were the first settlement of expats to arrive to the point where like the people there would look at us as if we were aliens. They would want to take photos with us. They would be fascinated that our eyes were blue. Um, we, we really felt that alienship, I guess. Um, lived in China for four years, did my fifth grade and middle, I think it was fifth grade and middle school years. And then after that, my family decided to move to Dubai, um, which is where you left, where you lived as well. Um, 
and I did my high school years in Dubai. And then I, ever since I was a kid back in Brazil, even I was in the arts, I was a child actor. I mean, you are, you are a storyteller through and through how I remember you. (laughs) And you've obviously gone through like a whole journey, but you were always in all the plays and you're a fantastic actress as well. Oh, I appreciate that. No. Yeah. I think I was just a very outspoken kid since I was very, very young. My mom used to tell me, so she kind of threw me in that world and I just found my place there. Um, so naturally I wanted to come to New York City. I think that that made so much sense for me. It was a dream. I knew I wanted to just do something with, with this skill. Um, so I came to New York for college. I went to performing arts school first. Um, it was a two year conservatory. And then after that, I went to the new school to get my film degree. And I have stayed ever since, which fun fact, New York is the longest place I've ever lived in my life right now. I've always moved every four years. Even back in Brazil, we would move cities every four years. Wow. I'm actually in the same boat. No way. I've been there five and a half years and it's the longest I've ever lived where, uh, somewhere as well. Crazy, is, right? It's such a unique way of growing up. And I think it really does affect the work that you want to do. And I've noticed with a lot of other like third culture kids, it is a very communal experience that you get from from living that way and you meet many different cultures and you meet many different ways of life. 100%. It's a very special way of, of, of spending your young years. And I've noticed with people that are now growing up and people in my community that all their work, whether it's, you know, business or something like we do in the arts, it is still centered around togetherness and internationally. I think that kind of traveler spirit is in all of us. 100%. I think this like nomadic life, I, I say nomadic just because we're constantly changing and adapting to new places. Like it's part of our second nature. Um, it, it really truly speaks to, to the person that I am today and in how I, I view the world. Um, just if like, I, I was talking to somebody about it the other day. I was like, I, I, the way I see things is so difficult to explain because imagine this, I grew up in a poor Latin American country and then I lived in communist China and then I lived in conservative Middle East and now I'm in super liberal New York City. I've seen it all. I've witnessed it all. And that, you know, and I'm able to take a little bit of all of those things and, and to what I believe to be, you know, valuable for me and put it out into the world. I love, I mean, I just, uh, I relate to it on so many levels. Um, but so you started out as an actor. How did you end up in film? Because you started at a conservatory in New York and then you ended up choosing to do a film degree. So how did that happen? It can get a little deep, <laughs> but long story short, I, I graduated from a conservatory. I was auditioning nonstop. I put out a whole year to kind of just audition and figure out what I could do with it. And I was doing a couple of off-off Broadway shows here and there, a couple short films and small cameos and TV shows and whatnot, but nothing was really consistent. And towards that end of that one year period I gave to myself, I realized that I, you know, I needed to live. (laughs) I needed to survive. I needed to, you know, pay the bills and kind of have more of a consistent plan, especially because I was an immigrant. And to me, it's not it wasn't like a viable option to just be an artist at free well. And then I was just like, okay, you know what? I'm going to go back to school and and do film. I don't want to change careers entirely. I still want to be a storyteller. So the new school offers this great program for transfer students um, that you can sort of pick and choose 
your own um, degree. Like, I don't really know. It's like a, you kind of just curate your own degree in a way. It's nothing set in stone, which is awesome because I could figure out what I wanted to do with my specific things. So I did film mixed with language studies, mixed with like world studies, kind of given my background. Because um, you speak five languages, right? Uh, now, I don't know anymore. Almost. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I've lost my I've lost my Arabic because we had to take Arabic when we like no you know it's somewhere in you the understanding of languages I do this thing I don't know if you do it too I take on other people's accents when I hang out with them too much yeah I do that all the time my friends think I'm so weird especially when I have like too many glasses of wine I start talking in a British accent because we went to school in a British system (laughs) and everyone's like why are you like that so funny (laughs) I went to new school, um, studied film. I was set in stone and working on, on fiction film. I was like, I'm going to write a, write a film, make it in school, and then I don't know. God knows what. Just going to be a filmmaker. And then I think it was about my second semester at the new school, I realized, I didn't realize, I got an internship at a startup as a video editor. And these were like social Facebook videos, super easy to do. Um, but it was about two to three days a week that slowly started becoming five days a week on a nine to five basis. And I started seeing this world of an office life that I had never thought about, never wanted to do. I was, if anything, I I was in spite of it. I I could not fathom the idea of me going to a nine to five job. And the company was growing and they were were doing cool things with video and they started shifting to documentary work it was you know they call it branded documentary work because it was branded on the company so the stories were supposed to you know match the company's voice and we did a few cool ones where some of my bosses kind of just threw these projects on me and they were like can you edit this documentary I had never edited anything close to a short documentary in my life so I was like yeah I'll take it whatever and I started doing it. And as I was doing it, I just resonated with it so much. I, I, re- I don't know what it was about it that made me feel so good. And I started sharing and talking it to my family members and friends. And they would like comment on how that made them feel. And I think I finally like found that sort of artwork that makes me feel good, makes me truly feel as an artist, but also like makes the viewer feel something as well. And that's when I realized that maybe I, it wasn't the right time for me to pursue acting. And I think that has to do with quite a few things. I'm sure we can get into it, but it has to do a lot with my journey as an artist and really figuring out how to, to execute my art. Um, that made me realize that the timing was different for me. It's something that I think about a lot, especially because I'm in that phase of like, oh, I'm an actor and I'm auditioning and you don't have a lot of control over your life. And it's really interesting that when you are an artist and you are a storyteller that you do start looking for different outlets and those can be and often should be as rewarding because it is you are a multifaceted person. We all living in the world, experiencing the world in different ways and I think being an actor, it's also interesting because you you learn by by becoming another person who is another person who does a different job. So there is an element of like curiosity that comes with that into different worlds. I like I like the word multifaceted. I think that is one of the most valuable things I learned as an artist is that you don't have to settle to one specific medium. I think we have the gift, we as storytellers have the gift to just do what we do and many different ways and in a way we have to sort of 
keep up with the world. It's ever changing, you know, video is ever changing, media is ever changing, the digital world is ever changing, theater, everything. And we have to kind of be able to pivot to whatever is happening in the world. Like right now, we're doing remote interviews, remote everything. So when I realized that I didn't have to just be an actor, I could be something else, but still have the same feelings as an artist is when I, when it was like the mind blowing moment for me. I know that you worked with Fatherly and you did My Kid. Yeah. Where did it really start taking off for you? What is the project that really kind of manifested for you? This is now my, my career. I think My Kid, that was definitely the huge pivotal point for me. But even before that, after that first short documentary I had edited, I started liking it. So I would like be such a pain in the ass for <laughs> the producers that work there. I was like, take me to the shoots with you. I want to learn what you're doing. Like, take me to everything. I want to do it. And because I started showing so much enthusiasm for it, they would just kind of just hand me things and let me do it. And we started, you know, developing a few short documentaries here and there, a few things here and there. And then the company started growing and they wanted us to pitch ideas for shows that we could um, venture out with. And every Thursday, I remember we'd have a pitch meeting and I would like the night before just go all out and write like thousands of pitches just in hopes to get like one green lit. And I found the story on, I don't really remember where I found it right now, of this kid called Callum Tilton. He was a five-year-old at the time who was paraplegic and he skied, he rock climbed, he did like everything a normal kid was doing, though he was paralyzed waist down. He was also a cancer survivor at, just at the age of five. And it was a fascinating, cute little story. And I was like, I love this. I want to tell this story. And I pitched it to my executive producer and he liked it, but he was like, eh, I'm not sure I can send you to, Michi uh, to Maine to film this. Put it on the books for now. And then I reached out to them without my boss knowing because <laughs> I was like, I need to figure it out, a way to tell this story. And the family actually told me that they were going to be in New York a couple of weeks down to, to visit their like daughter or something. So I went back to my boss, pitched it again. And once the story started unfolding and we all talked about it, we talked to the family, we talked about what we could do, we realized that it could be like part of a much larger show of kids. Um, it's exceptional kids, but it's really about the parenting behind them, right? So kids who are really good at what they do from very young age and the parents that support them. Yeah. So that was how the show got greenlit. That we, I, it was my, like, I was thrown into that without any experience in directing, producing, or any of that. I was extremely nervous. I remember, like, I brought in, like, a five-person crew which is a lot for a very small company. Normally you do two people shoot, like you go and you film and you do sound and you do everything yourself. But I brought everyone because I was so nervous and I didn't know what to do and it had to be a big thing. <laughs> I mean, in hindsight, I, God, I could have done so much better at it. But, you know, it was a starting point and I felt so good being on set and telling a real story and talking to real people about real things that really resonated with me and with the audience around me. When it was published, people were like sending me messages like, this is incredible, like life changing, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, like this is it. This is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I want to backtrack a little bit. One of the reasons why I even started this podcast was because how do I, how do I learn? Like, how do I learn from people who have already done it before? So let's talk a bit about pitching. Yeah. Where do you start? What did you learn through that process of advocating for the work that you want to create? I learned how to pitch. Thankfully, I was working at the startup. So it, it, it was, it's a publisher. So 
the writers will have their pitches every day where they pitch for stories that they want to write about. So the video team was very new. And we used to do these social videos that weren't working anymore. And we needed something to get more audience viewers. And we'd have these meetings about different types of videos, different video subjects that we could pitch about. I mean, basically anything that you can imagine from like browsing the internet all day long to see what other people are doing to reading newspapers in really small towns across the U.S. I would gather all that information and then come up with a pitch of my own. I wouldn't say it's different, right? That's, that's what it's like for publishers. But if you're working in the real space, like what I would do today is I would do a lot of research prior to pitching something. Does that, does that make sense? I'm kind of going down a spiral here of what I'm trying to say. No, it makes sense. I mean, it is in the work that you do. It's all about the story, right? I haven't figured out the art of pitching just yet because the work that I, I like doing, I like unfolding the story as I go. And it's so hard to just be like, hey, here's a story about a boy who's paraplegic um, and he rock climbs cool, sounds great, but what really is the story? We're not going to know until we actually go and talk to the family and film them and follow them for a little while. Pitching for a brand, you know what their mission are, you know what kind of content they publish, you know exactly what will resonate with their audience, so you become more specific in your pitches, right? You can come up with cool formats, that's what brands really love at the moment. Um, you can see this in like, like Refinery29 has a really good um, like video journalism style that they do great big story has a really specific video style that they do and so I know the kind of stories that great big story is looking for and I'll try to find something along those lines in the documentary space it's free will you can do whatever you want you can pitch whatever you want but I do think like really doing your research really making sure you're detailed and specific in what the story will look like um and what you think and or how you think the story will unfold when you're filming it and the format that you want it to be in. Yeah. I think one of the biggest questions I always have about documentary, which also goes to like the larger ethics about documentary filmmaking, which I would love to get into a little bit later, is how do you choose the story that you want to tell? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> I have, no, I have been working this, especially during this quarantine, I've been trying to develop um, a style and an overall topic that really resonates with me as a filmmaker and going from there, because I'm the kind of person that I like to, I believe everybody has a story to tell. And so I like telling stories about everything, but I, I started taking a look at my work recently and I realized that there isn't a uniformed thing about my work. My work is very generic. It depends on the story and my style will vary on that. But I, I don't have this like, it's not like I'm a filmmaker about the environment. It's not like I'm a filmmaker about like, I don't know, juices. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's very varied. And that comes back to the, to the question you asked because I'm asking myself that, like how do I know the stories that I wanna tell? I think to me, it's stories that really push me to like, I think it's just as simple as how excited I'm feeling. If I'm working on something and I'm bored to death, I know that's not for me, you know? If I'm working on something that I'm like, holy crap, everybody needs to see this. Like, I, I can't even breathe. I need to figure this out right now. There you go. That's your answer. It's like a hard intuition. I think it is. It's such an interesting 
thing that I guess I was never really taught when I was younger or like a child or a young teenager that your gut and the way you really feel about something is truly the value of it. You're going to find your people, your community. It truly changes your life when you're like, wait, let me check in and see how I'm feeling because you aren't taught to check in with that necessarily. 1000%. And I think that's the beauty of like, every filmmaker is different because every filmmaker is passionate about something else and every filmmaker has a different view on something else. And so that's what makes this fun. None of us are ever going to be the same. You know, Mm -hmm. we can try to be the next Wes Anderson, but we're always going to have our own little spin to it. And, and, And totally, I think instinct has a lot to do with it. Going back to your values, realizing what is valuable to you, what do you want the world to see and to take from your stories? And what do you think you can shine a light on? And for me, it's always stories about people. It's people-eccentric stories. I'm a huge advocate for telling stories of deep inner feelings and things that everybody goes through, but, you know, no one wants to talk about. Mm -hmm. You've been working on a film for a long time now, on your short doc, about a man in the West Village who owns a bookstore. Tell me about Mr. Jim Dugras. (laughs) Yeah, so <laughs> that was actually a funny story. I used to live um, in this really tiny West Village apartment for a while. I think it was two years, and just downstairs of it, there was a bookstore. It's a super like raggy looking bookstore, and the name of it is huge. Everybody that looks at it is just like, what? Um, it's unoppressive, non imperialist bargain books. It's like in the center of Carmine Street. And you look at those words and you're like, what does that even mean? And you would always see this owner just sitting down outside in his little like kitty stool and just like w- looking at the world pass by. And I always looked at him and I thought he was so interesting. I was like, this guy is so, so fascinating. I want to talk to him. But you know, I was in college. I was, I don't even know what I was. <laughs> I didn't really care so much. And I just let the time pass. And I realized that I was moving out of the West Village. And I was like, I still haven't spoken to this guy. It's not cool. So I went downstairs and I started just having a conversation with him. And I realized that he lived in his own little world in a very good way. It was such intelligent, bohemic, and intriguing worlds that I literally just looked at him. I was like, I need to make a film about you. And he was like, yeah, cool. (laughs) I thought I was going to do this myself. I was going to pull a camera, pull some sound together and just do this myself. Never really got around to it. And then I started speaking to two of my old co-workers about it. And they were like, that's amazing. Like, how, how come you haven't done it yet? And I was like, I don't know. I don't have the resources. I don't really know how to get it together. And they were like, I'll help you. So the three of us kind of got together. We made a plan for it. We thought we were just going to shoot it for one day, make a cute little short story about it, like three minutes long. And little did we know that one day turned into two and a half years now um, (laughs) that we've been following him. Um, We actually went into post-production starting January and we were aiming to have the film done by around now. And ever since this COVID thing um, became a huge aspect of everyone's lives, we found out, we, we touched base with him and he told us that the store is actually closed and there's very little chance that he'll actually be able to be back on his feet and stay there. His landlord is trying to evict him, and he hasn't paid rent in two months. And even if he does open up, there's not enough tourists or passerbys to make that revenue to pay the past two months and the following months. Wow. This sort of wraps an ending to our story that I think it 
I think we have to do its justice and just hold out a little longer and film because the story is really about resistance, how this guy has been around for, you know, almost 30 years and he, he has maintained this culture, Bob Dylan culture, Patti Smith culture, like these people that, you know, uh, what's the word? Um, Woodstock. (laughs) These people who, who have such a free spirit such a bohemian lifestyle and are, are mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so in their own world that you didn't even know these kind of people existed in New York still. He was part of a huge cultural change within the West Village. And, and now it's all you see is chains. All you see is fancy restaurants and empty storefronts. And it's all because obviously real estate, but a lot of it I think has to do with just ignorance of, of, the current culture and we're not cherishing people and stories like these to be honest with you when I started doing this I had no idea what our story would be two years into it I had no idea what our story would be I was hoping that once we started editing we would kind of figure it out and then now slowly we're seeing that it's he he he's just a go-getter you know the store is going to close but we're going to figure out what's going to happen next to him. And he was, he was telling us he might just set up a bike and sell books on his bike. And it's like, see that that's what this is about. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that is, but that is just so fascinating. And I'm so excited about that because it is a very visceral city. And to see that trajectory of somebody like that also in the time that we're in, that it ends like that and that the story comes forward with such a kind of slam in your face. I think it's a true testament to how documentary filmmaking is is about the world and that it, the story will show you where to go with it. One thousand percent. I think um, I'm a huge planner. I am extremely OCD organized. And so as someone who likes to have a plan, this was a huge slap in the face for me to realize that I have to do what's just for the story and not for me. It's not about me wanting to get my film out sooner so I can get viewers out there it's really about the story and Mm -hmm. I think comes back to our background for sure I think you know culture for me that's one of the top values that I have as a person it's just the preservation of cultures um no matter how different they may be we all feel what we feel and I think we all have something to learn from different cultures so so part of what's really making me passionate about the story is that it's really that I have zero common things with, you know, him and, and his world. If anything, I didn't really understand the American history from Woodstock times till now. I didn't really understand what Bob Dylan was about or Patti Smith and all those revolutionary artists. I had to do my research on it. And once I started understanding that I realized, okay, we have, we as a society right now, it is a very broken society, really have to start taking things from these people in order to, to move forward. Mm-hmm. You touched on it kind of, I think, about the discourse that there is on documentary filmmaking and ethics and what do you film and what do you not film and how close do you get with your subject? A question I want to pose to you is where do the, your decisions lie with you or do the decisions what end up in the film lie with the subject? How do you kind of treat that? Yeah, I'm always very, very open with my subjects. Um, 
from the very beginning. I never want to do something that would make them feel uncomfortable. I don't think that's fair. I I do have final say in all of my films, but I do the justice of showing them first. So with with you know, and if there's something that they absolutely cannot withstand, it has never happened, and knock on wood, then we would have a conversation about it. For brands, you know, when you're working with companies, that's so much different. You can't do that. You make them sign a release and, and that's that. You as a filmmaker have full creative control as well as the brand. But it, in my personal work, I really want to make sure I do them the justice of telling the truth. And sometimes my view may be distorted. I, I might put, project something differently in the edit that may not be truthful to them. So I think it's only fair to show them the film beforehand and you know see how they feel what kind of advice do you have to give what steps do you think are necessary when you are pursuing a project i think one of the most valuable things and i may be a little bit of a hypocrite in saying this is talk to people about it but talk to people about it and that you trust um talk to friends talk to i don't know message someone on linkedin that you admire and ask them out for coffee talk to them about this project and hear their thoughts the more feedback you can get early on the more it'll help you shape out what everybody else also thinks because i seldom did that because i was always terrified of somebody stealing my idea um, which makes me a bit of a hypocrite and also i don't know if that's necessarily true that people will. But once I started talking to some friends that I kind of trusted and people who were very like well written in the industry and they would give me feedback, they were like, that's amazing. You should pursue that. And I realized that they were genuinely excited for me and willing to help. That's when I started being more confident in my ideas and being more confident in my work. Don't be afraid to reach out, to cold reach out to people. That's something that I learned as well. I was like, I don't care if they say no or if they think I'm a weirdo. Like I literally message people on LinkedIn and in their websites almost every single day. And I'm just like, I want to grab coffee. I want to learn. I really want to learn. That would be my second advice. Like don't be afraid to put yourself in a position where you think you might look like an amateur like really ask people to just follow them for a day and what they do. And you can like truly see how their process is and apply what works for you. But when you're sitting down there with a great idea, but you don't know what to do with it, you don't know how to take the next step and, and you start losing confidence because of that. That's hurtful because it's your idea. It's your baby. You should definitely execute it. So I think asking people for advice and following them really doesn't hurt at all. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about technical things. Did you have experience, practical experience with cameras? Where do you get your equipment, funding? Let's talk a little bit about making that story that you love so much really come true. Fun stuff. Um, very little experience to what film school gives you, right? So those like crappy DSLR cameras that you could rent out for a day. So I kind of knew the gist of it, but I, I would never call myself a cinematographer, never call myself a, a sound person. I was really, really lucky that in the startup that I worked at, they, they, you know, had their own gear and had their own studio and they were very, very easy going with us just kind of playing around with the gear so we could learn more as well. By sending me to shoots and just kind of like throwing me on the spot, I kind of just grasped, grasped at it and learned. And I think that's honestly my best advice to people ever because 
if you want to learn something, just do it. That's how you learn it. Like, it's like learning a language. You, I think you sitting down behind a book all day long will never make you be fluent at that language. You have to go, if you want to learn Japanese, go to Japan, spend a month there, you will come back fluent. You just have to do it. Mm-hmm. Same thing with, with, with gear. It's and like, you know, I remember once I was on a shoot and I had no idea how to work something on the camera. And I was just like Googling and YouTubing as I went and it happened and I learned. I'm a huge, I have this thing called, I call it the funk. It's the fear of not knowing. It's like the FOMO, but for knowledge, I don't like not knowing things. So real. I I got the funk <laughs> so hard. <laughs> yeah, I always over-prepare myself before doing things, and I, you know, totally junk out and nerd out on camera gear stuff. If you have the resources to, whether it's at school or where you work, I think just ask people to, to lend their equipment for you for a day and just play around with it. You would be surprised with how many people would actually say no. Um, I even have like cinematographer friends who have like these super expensive Alexa, probably costs like $80,000, God knows. And one of them was like, oh, but if you want to borrow it for a day to play around, just let me know. And I was like, you trust me with that? Like, even I don't trust myself with that. Get yourself a simple camera. It doesn't have to be fancy. Get yourself a simple uh, sound set and go out and film something. Mm -hmm. You'll learn. What's the value of knowing an editing program? Ah, so important. So that's another thing that I learned in a day. I, I had this interview for this internship and it was an editing position. I was like, I don't know how to edit. And my, my ex-boyfriend at the time was like, well, just learn. So I went online the, like, the day before, downloaded Premiere, and just, like, figured it out. And I totally bullshitted my way through it in the first couple of months. But then I did it. One of the greatest things I learned, um, again, not to, to settle into one medium as a filmmaker, is that you, you don't, if you want to be a director and that's exactly what you want to be, you don't have to stick to that. I think if anything, it, what will make you a better director is learning what the sound guy does every day, is learning what a grip and a grapher does every day, is learning like how to edit, how to, I don't know, anything on set, even like wardrobe and makeup. Watch what they do for a day, try to do it once because then your vision will become more clear, more logical, and everything that you will do, you will understand what that person needs to make it better for you. Editing is a huge example of that. Now that I know how to edit and I know what, or I know the gist of what needs, what we need in a documentary to make it look good, mm-hmm. I know as a shooter and as a producer what I need to get for the editor, right? I know exactly the story elements, exactly the visuals that they will need to make the story look good you have the time if you have like two hours a day to kind of just play around with premiere and do some home style videos like do it premiere is not the only one you can do final cut avid whatever mm-hmm. works for you works right now in the industry you know there's there's not really a standard people just kind of do what you're good at and if they request i think premiere and avid would be the standard ones but like whatever <laughs> then I I say do it because you'll start seeing things that you'll need to go back and shoot for. And you'll start seeing story elements that are really important to get to in the first place. Mm -hmm. What's an unmissable thing that you need when you are, when you're on set? Improv. (laughs) 
honestly, there is not a, a single day in this entire world where something doesn't go wrong on set. I I can't even. There's I have so many stories of just like little things that I forgot to do or someone else forgot to do or just it happens all of a sudden. You have to be patient and you have to learn how to improvise on the spot. And yeah, take improv classes if 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 that's what will help you. If if you feel like you're not super confident in like coming up with things on the spot, I think improv classes definitely help you get out of that shell. But I think being able to be versatile and and sort of um, adaptable to whatever's going on is the most key thing you can have. In creating your own doc, I want to talk a bit about funding and money and, and the, the money. scary things yeah. when it comes to, <laughs> to filmmaking. What resources or what tips, like what are your thoughts on all of that? Because it can be very daunting to talk about. It is. I am a terrible example of that because my my current film is self-funded. Um, and here's why, uh, which, which could be a good example, actually, to tell you. I was working full time. I didn't have extra time to go out and make a, you know, a film by myself. If anything, have the time to look for funding. It just made sense that I was kind of, I thought I could do it for free, right? My two producers that were with me were willing to do it as a passion project because they were just as passionate about it as me. And we started doing it. And then we would borrow gear from, I may be not allowed to say this, but we borrowed gear from the studio that we used to work in. And we would take it out on the weekends and take it out at night. They, they did encourage us to take it out and practice. So that's how we justified it. But we kind of just used the resources that we had around us. Speaking out to the idea that anybody can make a film nowadays, right? Regardless of whether you have funding or not. Funding is definitely scary. Nowadays, in order to make a good film, you do need money. Because it's little little expenses that will add up that you don't really think about. Um, There's so, so many great resources online for specific fundings, whether it's women filmmakers specific, whether it's LGBTQ, um, whether it's African-American filmmakers. There's very specific groups to very specific filmmakers and the types of film that you're making. So the options are endless. Yeah, what you will have to do is really know your film and write a heck of a synopsis for it, write a heck of a log line and just have it all written out almost as if it's a script, even if it's a documentary film and just pitch it like it's the most meaningful thing in the world to you. Right now, <laughs> funding is a bit more questionable because we don't know what the trajectory of film is going particularly in the distribution space, right? We don't know what's happening to film festivals anymore. We don't know what the future of film holds for us. Um, and so I think it may be more difficult to get funding. But like I said, use me as an example. If you want to make a film with $5 in your pocket, you totally can. Just look for the resources around you. And if you don't have resources around you, then reach out to people who might. And you never know. Yeah. You mentioned that you about film festivals and obviously with everything that's been canceled, but what has the value for, of film festivals been to you um, thus far in your career and, and life as an artist? I always used to think that film festivals were whatever. I was like, yeah, I don't really care about them that much. It's, I'm like searching more for Hollywood, right? So young and naive and guide. I think the first one, one of the first ones I went to was Tribeca here in the city. I realized that it was a space where you could watch a movie 
sit down and ask a filmmaker a question about it, and then network with people of the same interest as you. Such a simple concept, but it's like, what? I think film festivals are a great space for young and um, aspiring starting filmmakers, even such as me. I, I am looking, I was hoping to get into the festival circuit this year for, for our film. But, you know, it, it's a great space for you not only to get your, your name out there, but to network with people that are like-minded. I don't think there is a festival too big or too small. Obviously, South By is huge. Sundance is huge. And, and those are great to aim for. But don't overlook your little tiny Doc NYC or don't overlook your, I don't know, like Iowa Film Festival, if that's even a thing really like start it out small because then you'll get really good intimate feedback intimate networking to essentially grow your way they really changed my life I think as you like oh film festivals when I was younger I didn't really know what that entailed and then I went to New York Film Festival I think the first time and it completely changed my life and I think it also really as a young person who just thought they were an actor and not multidisciplinary I went once to see an actor I liked and Mm -hmm. I fell in love with filmmaking. It truly is that it's a very electric energy that, that, that happens in those rooms. Yeah. Before we talked, uh, we both watched What Happened with Simone, which is available on mm -hmm. Netflix. And I highly recommend anybody who's listening to this to go and watch it. It's directed by Liz Garbus. I think it was released in 2015 and it got an Oscar nom for Best Dog. Mm -hmm. um, what drew you this film. I asked you to, uh, to tell me a film that I should watch and it was this one. Yeah. Um, I think when we were talking before recording this, I remember us briefly touching base on, on like the journey of us as artists and kind of figuring out, you know, what it means to be an artist and what it means to express that in a specific storytelling way. And I think what happened Miss Simone really exemplifies her journey mm -hmm. as an artist, right? Um, I, I grew up like, sure, knowing who Nina Simone was, but never really knowing her story. So to me, that was like the first eye opener for me to, to really understand what, what happened to her and how her career shaped her and all of that. So I was, I, I was extremely inspired, but also like fascinated at how much every artist goes through something deeper than that we can talk about. And we, we express that out into our work, but not necessarily in our real lives. It shows the difficulty of us being who we really are, or being able to be who we really are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's such a, it's thrilling and it's heartbreaking. There's like so much light and so much dark. And, you know, it really lives in archival footage and radio interviews. Mm -hmm. There's only really short moments of live interviews with her daughter and her, I believe, goddaughter and people who, who knew her. She was a very active and unmissable part of the American Civil Rights Movement. And mm -hmm. one part I just, I can't let go of is she says, how can you be an artist and not reflect the times? That just really, that really landed in me. And how do, how do you look at this? I, I got goosebumps because this is exactly what I'm struggling with right now. I've been in the, like the verge of just reading art, like reading things online about being productive in this time. And then other people saying how we should not be productive at this time. I read two articles um, that I'm quickly going to briefly mention. One was 
productivity is a result of American culture trying to put this on us, right? Trying to make you feel guilty for not being productive right now, when really we should be taking the time to breathe and understand what's going on and just kind of reflect on it, be human for a second, understand that there's people losing family members from left to right, and just settle. The other article I read was, I, I'm not going to remember names right now, which is awful, but um, it was this artist who, who I think way back when Bush was reelected, she called a friend and he was like, how are you? And she was like, um, oh, I'm not doing well. Like I haven't done any art in so long. I don't know what to do because this reelection. And he was like, stop, 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 stop. Now is the time for you to do your art. This, this is where artists get their, their strive from, their, their work from. And she like had this amazing awakening through that mm-hmm. and, and just really reflected on it and started, started working from times like this, from what's going on. And I super resonated with that, but I also resonated with the non-productive mm-hmm. essay. So, so how do we take, the question is, how do we take what's going on in the world right now, do the justice of being human and, and accept the new reality, but also as artists, how do we take that and put it out into the world? I think one of the things that, that I took from, from the film and from Nina immediately was that we as artists, we're able to go places so deep. Anyone wouldn't dare to on a day-to-day basis, right? I consider myself a very vocal, emotional person. I have no problem being um, vulnerable. I'm very emotional. I'm a Scorpio. <laughs> but it's a very lonely place to be. You're, you're going deep into things that you, you don't necessarily want to talk about, some things that you might not have closure with, some things that you feel very lonely in. So how, how do you give but also remedy that mm-hmm. in your own soul totally and I think it comes in so many forms where it is like yeah the actual art and the emotion and it's also the work it's hard work like creating films as you said it's one day can turn into two and a half years where you're so in it that you have to yeah one of the most valuable I'm like one of the most valuable I said that five times already uh the lessons that I learned uh from one of my old uh acting teachers Terry Schreiber is he told me this was specific to acting but I think we can take it across the board he said you should never work with something that you don't have closure with I think specifically to acting is because you're going to be if you're on theater for example you're going to be using it over and over again so if you're working with emotions or with an experience that you had in life that you're bringing onto the stage every single night. If it's something you actually haven't had closure with in real life, you're going to hurt. And that's going to deteriorate your soul. That's going to deteriorate you as a person. You can argue that with filmmaking and particularly documentary filmmaking because you have to express what's going on in the real world, regardless whether you have closure with it or not. Um, I even the, these documentaries that I was watching, I was reading an interview and the, the filmmaker was saying how his crew would go back home and, and cry after each shoot because they're shooting in, under these extreme circumstances in civil wars. And imagine seeing that on a day to day basis, even the sound guy felt it, you know, like having to to 
somehow protect your personhood in some way yeah. yeah whilst knowing also the privilege of you being there and and, of and course. it's all of these layers yeah so i'm a huge advocate for therapy <laughs> <laughs> i think we as our i am too i am 100 do it we need it okay so before we say goodbye i'm gonna do a little little recommendations from you and things that have affected you in your life in terms of work. So a film that inspires you can be narrative or non-narrative, whichever. I would say a film that's just, I always go back to is The Green Mile. Mm. I watched that as a kid until today. I have a very vivid memory of a moment where I was like, I need to do this. Wow. So, yeah. Okay. A film that the whole world needs to see right now. Um, It's a tough one. I wouldn't say maybe right now, but in general, a film that I think everybody should see is Minimalism. I believe it's on Netflix. It, gosh, we're such a materialistic driven society. And it's just, it's such a simple film. It's not crazy. It's not hardcore. It's just really asking you, like, do you really need all this stuff? Mm -hmm. To me, that, I think that, that was life changing. The last book you read. Um, the last book I read was Uncommon Type by Tom Hanks. Um, great. I don't really read fiction, like almost ever, but I just started reading this and I fell in love with his writing. That's awesome. I love that. That's a yeah. great recommendation. Okay, this one's <laughs> going to be a little hard. Okay. A filmmaker that you'd like to sit next to in a panel. Uh, right now, I do have to say it's Orlando Von Eisenberg. Uh, I'm probably saying his last name wrong, and if I don't know if he'll ever listen to this, but he, yeah, sorry. <laughs> we apologize. Um, but we still want to sit next to you in a panel. <laughs> I know, right? I'm obsessed with his work right now. His work is really resonating to me um, in terms of what kind of films I want to be making in the future. And every film he makes just moves me, just like makes me itchy, anxious, and I just like start like getting crazy and wanting to do something about it, so... I'm so excited. This was so helpful and just hit so many things. So thank you. Of course. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm sorry if I talk too much. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. No, I'm so happy to listen. Like it, it's just you have a you're a fascinating person and like I'm so happy to to talk about your projects and your thoughts on making projects. It's really yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. I, I hope we can help ladies everywhere i hope so too i hope ladies feel empowered (laughs) thank you so much for listening to the episode if you enjoyed what you heard please hit that subscribe button and leave a review or rating or share the link with your community it helps more than i can say you can check out beatrice's work on her website linked in the show notes next week's episode will be up at the same time 9 a.m gmt Stay tuned for all updates on the podcast on Instagram at Podcast. See you next week.